Hello, you're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we study the past to understand our feelings in the present. I'm Thomas Dixon, and this is The Sound of Anger. One of the people I spoke with for this series is the psychologist Professor Jim Russell of Boston College. Jim is one of the world's leading experts on the psychology of emotions. You can hear some of his comments in episode one of The Sound of Anger. But we thought that what he had to say was so interesting that people might like to hear the whole conversation. So, here it is. Okay, so Jim, you gave a talk at our conference yesterday about anger and fear and the whole idea of basic emotions and the work that's been done to challenge that theory. Maybe we could start by summarising what does the theory of basic emotions say? The idea is probably pervasive in our Western way of thinking. You can find it in the Bible. You can find it in Aristotle. It seems humans like to categorize events or objects. And the basic emotion idea can be articulated in somewhat different ways. Psychology has its own version right now. But the basic idea is that human nature comes with certain fixed entities, these emotions, fear, anger, sadness, and so forth, that have a physiological pattern in the, in the body, a certain brain mechanism, a facial signal, and it makes you do certain things. You're ready to flee, you're ready to fight, and so forth. And um, that idea has been pervasive in psychology, almost um, articulated in some theories and just simply assumed in other theories. For these podcasts, we're particularly interested in anger. And I know there are various different versions of the basic emotions approach, but I think almost all of them, or maybe all of them, include anger on the yes, list, don't yes, they? It seems yes. to be... Why is that, do you think? Why is it, is it one of the ones when it's easiest to make the case that it's somehow universal? It does seem that every language seems to acknowledge something like anger, and it's probably a very important aspect of human life. We get aggressive toward one another, and we get unhappy with what the other person is doing. We feel morally offended and so forth. I think that's a rather broad cluster of events, so I wouldn't call them all anger, but nevertheless, something like that makes sense to have a word for it. I know that you've taken a particular interest in the face, and and part of the idea of basic emotions, as you've said, is that each emotion has a distinctive facial expression. Could you describe for us what is the anger face that basic emotion theorists think or suggest might be universal? How does it look? Well, uh, Paul Ekman has been studying this for many years, and there is one stereotype version, which is a frown, wrinkled brow, eyes wide open, teeth bared as if you're going to bite something. But Paul Ekman has also found in his research that there's maybe, I forget, dozens and dozens of variations on this. And so there is no really one facial expression that even the most adamant basic emotion theorist has come up with. I'm trying to do it. Can you, if I, I can't really frown and keep my eyes wide open at the same time. It's raising the upper lids okay. and then frowning and baring your teeth. <laughs> I wish people could see the faces Jim and I are making at each other. <laughs> uh, but as you say, even basic emotion theorists admit that there's not just one face. So it right. starts to unravel right at the beginning. Because I've also seen a version of the anger face with the mouth closed and pursed right. lips. Pursed lips, yes. Um, that's one of them. So the, or there's a, there's a Clint Eastwood effect 
the actor, and you it's the lower eyelids go up. It's kind of a kind of nasty smoldering, stare, right? smoldering <laughs> kind of kind of anger. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So even at the beginning, we've actually got more than one face. But let, right. let let's suppose we go along with the idea. There's this one dominant anger face. Right. Right. Now you've looked at work which kind of uh, suggests that it's not so widely recognised or easily produced as as the theory would suppose. Well, ironically, the production of this face has been rarely studied. It's simply assumed that angry people must be making those faces. And when you look at rather poorly done movies, you find people making those kinds of faces. Although one of the studies I did looked at better movies, Academy Award winning and so forth, and there they don't make those, those kinds of, of faces. So in realistic movies, not even actors make those kinds of faces. But there have recently been um, an analysis looking at those few studies that have looked at the production. So you can bring people into the laboratory and insult them or ask them to remember times when they were angry or they see some obnoxious film or something like that. And um, some of them are rather hard to imagine. They got through the ethics committee, <laughs> come in and you start insulting somebody, yeah. and then they surreptitiously record their face. And in those studies, surprising to the basic emotion theory is that very few, if any, ever produce the full-blown stereotype facial expression that you and I were trying to make earlier. In maybe a third of the cases, 25% to 30%, you see a part of it, maybe the lips pursed or the brows furrowed, and that's about it. So in the large majority of cases, you find nothing on the face. And I think that chimes with my experience of real life, which is most of the time that I or other people experiencing strong emotions, you don't really show it. Right. It's not normal to go around doing, as you say, these kind of overacted facial expressions. I think you'd be locked up if yeah. you did, did such a thing. Yeah. And the only time I get close to it is with my children if I'm trying to kind of look a bit scary, you know, to get across to them in a rather dramatic way, I'm really angry now. Right. But in right. normal life, I can feel furious and I hope not show it too much. Right, yeah. right. I think that's right. We, we do those kinds of things with children. There are some interesting research. It hasn't been quite as technical as the basic emotion research, but it tends to show that when two people are having a conversation and you tell me a story in which you were angry, I may show it on my face to communicate to you, oh, I understand. Oh, how could that have happened to you? But it's not that I'm angry. I may be sympathetic, I may be sad, or even secretly happy that you went through that situation, but I'm communicating to you. So to some degree, it seems to me that maybe facial expressions are a kind of miming. Humans are very good at miming things. So without using words, we can communicate a lot. And mimes, of course, do it professionally, but I think in everyday life, part of our conversation is to mime these, these expressions. And I'm sitting here nodding and smiling. Yes, uh, exactly. Just instinctively to try and encourage you to carry on with this fascinating stuff. When it comes not to production, but to recognition of faces, I wonder if the basic emotion theory does a bit better. You know, I mean, it seems to me the easiest way to try and get this evidence is to give people a very limited choice. Right. You know, it's a small number of faces with these very almost caricatured expressions and then say, show me the angry one. And that, that's, that's their best hope, I think, for getting supporting evidence. And there have been literally hundreds of studies like that, including with young children in remote societies in Japan and China and Europe, of course, and many in America. It also appears in tests of emotional intelligence, all kinds of implications. So now people are building software to look at your face and tell somebody 
uh, what emotion you're feeling. So then the question is, do people really recognize those faces? And in adults, college-educated North Americans or Europeans, they do exactly what the basic emotion people say. So they look at that frowning face and they say, ah, anger. And they look at that big smile and they say, ah, happiness. But the question is, do children do the same sort of thing? Do people in societies less influenced by Western thinking? And at first, there's a famous study uh, Paul Ekman trekked through Papua New Guinea, had little cards with these photographs of Americans posing these facial expressions, showed them, and supposedly, it's not perfectly clear what happened in these studies, but anyway, supposedly got them to recognize the emotions from the facial expressions. And then for many years, 50 years, no one did that kind of research because it's very difficult to go to Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's tough, tough going. But recently, a team from Spain that I had something to do with, taking the credit and they did all the work, went to Papua New Guinea and they also went to some islands off the coast of Mozambique and tried to do these kinds of studies again. And surprisingly weak results. For the most part, you have to find a technique that really almost forces them to make choices. They don't spontaneously want to say, oh, this person's angry, that person's afraid. Um, when you kind of force them to, you show just a few facial expressions and say, show me the angry person, they will point to, to somebody. But they don't always point to the Ekman anger face. In fact, much more likely they'll point to the Ekman fear face of somebody who's angry. And it turns out that in the culture of the Trobrian Islanders, which is the particular group that was being studied, they have statues of threatening witches. And it looks very much like a fear face. Wide open eyes, open mouth. A gaping or gasping face. Yeah, a gasping kind of face. Uh, very few, 5%, 10%, pick the prototypical basic emotion anger face. But a majority do pick the fear gasping face as anger as a threat. Have there been studies done in North America or elsewhere where people are given emotion faces but not given a forced choice of labels? They're just given the faces and just asked to describe them rather than being asked, you've got this small number of words, you've got to match them up. At the turn of the last century, so in the early 19, 1910, 1920, people did that kind of a study and they would have many, many faces and say, what is this? And they largely concluded that people can't read faces. They don't know what's going on. And so one of the things that happened over time was that psychologists kept changing the method until eventually they found a method that worked. Got, got the results they got wanted. Got the, the results they wanted. So it had to do with uh, using much more exaggerated faces, not spontaneously produced ones, having people choose from a limited set of emotion terms, not produce their own. And eventually they got around to finding exactly the results they, they wanted. Do you have any theory as to why in Western culture we are so fixated on the face? I know your job is psychology rather than cultural history, but it is very notable looking across historical time, this increasing focus on the face, as opposed to a broader sense of an emotion as a, as a narrative or as a bodily behavior or a social interaction. It's narrowing down and down onto the face. Well, certainly humans pay attention to faces. Um, we know that babies um, in utero pay attention. You can shine lights in that in the shape of a face and they'll turn toward it. And in other shapes, they don't. 
So we seem attuned to paying attention to faces. Why there's been a historical change, I have no idea. No, that's my job. That's okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned babies, and I wanted to ask you to describe for us uh, a really fascinating study you mentioned in your talk about people being shown a film of a baby responding to a, a jack-in-the-box, because it illustrates something really interesting about the way we interpret emotions. Yes, it's one of my favorite old studies done in the 1970s. There was a baby who responded to a jack-in-the-box, and then they took that video and showed it to observers and said, what's the emotion um, that this baby is feeling? And it turns out for the boy baby, they said, oh, that's anger. And for the girl baby, they said, that's fear. The trick, of course, was is exactly the same baby, exactly the same film. So the result shows that what we interpret the person helps influence what emotion we see in the face and the body in, in the case of the baby. And in that case, it just shows how very strongly gendered our ideas yes, are about yes. what we expect exactly. to see. Exactly. So we see someone who's obviously a bit upset, but we bring a lot to that based on what gender they are, what we think their situation is, whether they're powerful or powerless. And in fact, the face on its own tells us very little. I think the faces are all ambiguous and that we have to interpret what's going on. And if we see a little bit more than the face, a bit about the body, something about their situation, their gender, any of these kinds of things can overrule what we think we see in the face. And those studies are just so artificial that they just force people to name an emotion. They give them a face. And I mean, a natural question would be, well, who is this person? Like, what's just happened right. to them? Well, what's right. going on here? Like, right. All I can see is their face. I don't know what they're right. feeling. Right. And as a historian, you probably appreciate that Historically, we never saw faces all by themselves frozen in time. Yeah. They're always seen dynamically in situations and, and so on. So it is a very artificial kind of study that's been... And if um, you were given a free done. response to most of those faces, you would just say, this is a very bad actor, basically. You? Just, <laughs> this is a terrible acting class when, that someone's when, taken their exactly, camera into. When, when people are given the chance to actually just say what they see, it looks posed. Yeah. It looks very phony. Yeah. No one really looks like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. My final question, which is you've had a hugely successful career developing your own theory of emotions, sort of psychological construction of emotions based on a different understanding with core affect, which is either positive or negative and intense or, or not intense. But I wonder whether you ever have sleepless nights uh, where you think, actually, maybe Paul Ekman's onto something. You know, maybe there are kind of emotion structures deep down. I don't think that. <laughs> I do think that psychology or the study of human beings in general is at a very early stage. And I don't at all imagine that my particular hypotheses and theory are going to last very long. That it's a dialectical process and that we will keep changing our ideas and learn more and more. So I don't think I have some sort of final answer. Uh, hopefully in my lifetime I'll be surprised by the new things that we find and the new theories and so on. But I don't think we're going to go backwards no more than physicists are going to come up and say, ah, oh, there really were just four elements like Aristotle thought. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. It was presented by me, Thomas Dixon, as part of the Living with Feeling project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. It was produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of the Sound of Anger series... And to listen to our other podcasts, search for Queen Mary History of Emotions on SoundCloud or iTunes and discover more about our work at 
emotionslab.org.